Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, which is hosting this panel of this two-panel program, the one on the law. Uh, in fact, the program, as you, for the benefit of our C-SPAN audience, is entitled The uh, Supreme Court's Obamacare Ruling, uh, What Does It All Mean? Um, and this uh, panel will be discussing the scope of constitutional powers as the next panel will be discussing the uh, substance of the matter, uh, where we go from here as a matter of uh, health care policy. Um, like so many who uh, heard the uh, oral arguments in the Obamacare litigation in late March, um, described by CNN's Jeffrey Tubin as a train wreck for the administration, uh, we uh, were uh, taken aback and stunned by the Supreme Court's decision last Thursday upholding Obamacare's individual mandate, not on Commerce Clause grounds, but on Congress's taxing power. No one uh, had taken that argument seriously. Many still don't. Um, but uh, Chief Justice Roberts did, and the court's four liberal justices said, in effect, if it works for the chief, uh, it'll work for us, uh, whatever uh, our reservations may be. Uh, so we're here now to uh, dissect this decision. Uh, unlike, uh, as with Cato's normal practice, however, uh, we decided even before the decision came down uh, that we would do so uh, not with a pro and con panel, is our, as is our usual practice, but with people who share roughly the same views. And we did so because we want to try to, from that perspective, zero in on this decision to draw out all that, or at least as much as we can in the time that we have to do so. And so let me proceed now to introduce uh, our panel. I'm going to introduce each speaker before he speaks, uh, starting with um, Randy Barnett, uh, who is, and I'll give a very brief uh, uh, introduction to each of our speakers because uh, their bios are extremely long and distinguished. Randy Barnett is the uh, Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Legal Theory at Georgetown University Law Center, where he teaches constitutional law and contracts. He's also taught torts, criminal law, cyber law, evidence, agency, partnership, and jurisprudence. He's been a visiting professor at the University of Pennsylvania, at Northwestern, and at Harvard Law School. In 2008, he was awarded a Guggenheim uh, Fellowship in Constitutional Studies. He's a graduate of Northwestern University and the Harvard Law School. Um, after graduating from Harvard, he uh, served as a prosecutor in the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. Uh, in 2004, uh, he um, uh, appeared before the U.S. Supreme Court to argue the medical cannabis case in Gonzales v. Raich after successfully arguing it in the Ninth Circuit. I guess we're to read from that that he did not successfully argue it before the Supreme Court, but for reasons that were nothing, to, not at all his fault. The court erred again. Um, he uh, co-authored an amicus brief in Lawrence v. Texas as well. Uh, he is the author of uh, Restoring the Lost Constitution, the Pre Presumption of Liberty, Princeton 2004, Constitutional Law Cases and Context, uh, The Structure of Liberty, Justice and the Rule of Law, Oxford 1998, and many uh, other books and uh, articles. Uh, so would you please welcome Randy Barnett.
Well, thank you, Roger. It's always a pleasure to be at Cato. I've, I think I've been here on happier days, on happier occasions. Um, I've been involved in this case, um, challenging the Affordable Care Act, since before the law was enacted in uh, 2009, when I wrote a Heritage Foundation legal memorandum on the unconstitutionality of the individual mandate with Nathaniel Stewart and Todd Gaziano, uh, the only person uh, who's been involved longer than I have in uh, fighting the constitutionality uh, of this bill and of the idea of an individual mandate is my colleague David Rivkin, who, uh, whose Wall Street Journal piece in September of 2009 actually first was the first piece that I read that got me thinking about the constitutional questions in this case. Um, last week, uh, the decision, as you all know, uh, did not go the way we hoped it would, um, and this was a real crushing blow uh, to liberty, um, and it was a crushing blow to myself. Um, so I was uh, pretty devastated by the loss, and I'm still devastated by the loss. And I want to say that up front uh, because I'm going to say some positive things that came out of this case, and I don't want to be characterized as somehow spinning the outcome um, or uh, uh, putting an un un unrealistic, optimistic view uh, on the outcome. In fact, it was a bad day, um, and it was a bad loss. But just because it was a bad day and a bad loss does not mean it could not have been worse, <laughs> because it could have been. And I think that um, in a, under circumstances like this, to engage in a kind of extreme doom and gloom that denies the stuff that we accomplished, um, while still bemoaning what we'd failed to accomplish, is actually to give the other side a bigger victory than they, in fact, obtained. So that's what I want to emphasize today. And in order to explain that, I want to suggest that there were actually two, the reason why this case was so big, the reason why this case was historic, and the reason why this case, the, the Supreme Court uh, granted a historic three, three days of oral argument is because there were two, not one, but two huge issues on the table in this case. The first was on Obamacare. The first was on the issue of whether the government in this country would control our medical care. And if the government does control our medical care, I believe, as do others, that that will fundamentally alter the relationship of individuals to the government and essentially change our form of government to one more closely approximating, or our, our political system, to one more uh, closely approximating Western Europe. Now, I don't have anything against Western Europe. I like going there. They have nice buildings and the food is good. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that I necessarily want to live under their political system, um, a social welfare social democracy. And if this particular bill was to remain in a law, uh, then I believe that is the inevitable outcome. So that was huge. The second huge thing that was on the table with this uh, law uh, was the Constitution of the United States, our constitutional form of government, government and in particular, that part of our form of government which says that the federal government is one of limited and enumerated powers. This has been the principle that this country has stood for from its founding. It's a principle that the Supreme Court has never denied and often affirmed. It didn't deny it in the New Deal. It didn't deny it during the Warren Court. It didn't deny it during the Great Society. It has never denied it. But if the individual mandate, which is the core of this bill, uh, which was enacted by Congress under its Commerce Clause authority, was going to be upheld in this case under the Commerce Clause authority, then the theories by which it was going to be upheld was going to, were going to eliminate the enumerated power scheme because the theory under which this could be regulated under the commerce power 
anything could be regulated under the Commerce power. And essentially, what we would have at the end of that litigation would be a national powers clause in, a, a nat, I'm sorry, a national problems clause in the Constitution, which is exactly what 99.9% .9 of law professors believe the Commerce Clause stands for and how they teach it to their students. And I know this because, of course, I've been debating with them for two years, and this is what I hear from the other side. And that is that essentially the Commerce Clause gives the Congress the power to address any national problem in its own discretion. And that's what it was at stake constitutionally. So what happened last week? Well, before I get to there, let me just say what we thought was going to happen. So everybody was surprised by what happened. I wasn't surprised necessarily that we lost, but I was surprised about how we lost. Because everyone assumed, and I mean everyone, including those on the other side, assumed that we'd either win on both of these issues or we'd lose on both of these issues. In other words, that in order to uh, prevail uh, 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 in our challenge to the, to the constitutionality of the, of the individual mandate, we would have to prevail on our Commerce Clause issues. But if we lost our challenge to the individual mandate, that would necessarily mean we would have to lose our Commerce Clause theory. And therefore, we would lose both uh, our challenge to Obamacare and, and our effort to preserve the enumerated power scheme of the Constitution. We would, we would have lost on the, on the medical care issue, and we would have lost on the Constitution. And everybody assumed that this was what was going to happen, one, or the, one way or the other, including the other side. Even all the law professors who said that this is justified under the tax authority, not one of them, not Jack Balkan, not Akhil Amar, not one of them said it was only justified under a saving construction of this statute under the tax power, but unconstitutional under the Commerce Clause. Not one of them took that position. Every one of them took the position it was constitutional both under the Commerce Power and under the tax power, which is not what was decided last week. So now let's talk about what was decided last week. What was decided last week was that there are five votes for the proposition, five votes of the Supreme Court for the proposition that every law professor on the other side said was frivolous when we went into this debate, and that is that there are limited and enumerated powers, that the individual insurance mandate as uh, drafted exceeds Congress's limited and enumerated powers under the Commerce Clause, that in fact uh, the Commerce Clause is restricted to regulating commerce or activity, economic activity that has a substantial effect on interstate commerce, and it does not reach inactivity. It does not reach people who are not doing anything. It does not give Congress the power to mandate e economic activity in order then to regulate it. That's what the court decided. Five votes. That was the position that 99.9% .9 of law professors and legal experts says was a, was a frivolous position. Their position, that Congress had an unlimited power, a discretionary power to address national problems, that position did not command five votes. That position commanded, at best, four votes. So if we are told that the meaning of the Constitution is not the original meaning of the Constitution, which is what I maintain, but it's what the Supreme Court says that the Constitution means, then if that's what we were told by those who believe in a living Constitution, then under that, those rules of engagement, we have five votes for the proposition that both the government is of limited enumerated powers, that the Commerce Clause is restricted in the way that we maintain from day one, and that the individual insurance mandate exceeded that restriction. Now, I consider that to be major, because the alternative would have been so much worse. And I don't think it is spinning, and I don't think it is putting an unrealistic gloss on what happened to say that that's what happened. Let me put this another way. If you were in a war, 
and you were uh, and you were in a big battle and you lost that big battle and it was a big one but during the course of that battle you gained some terrain at the end of the day after having lost that battle but still engaged in the same war would you then surrender that terrain you gained because why because you lost the battle of course not nobody would do that and that's the situation we found ourselves in we've actually moved constitutional law on the books in a positive direction because the position that has now been affirmed by five justices was not on the books in so explicit a form that law professors who teach constitutional law could say, could say oh, well, of course, that's at least a reasonable position. They, not, they said it wasn't even a reasonable position. And now it's the law, or it's the law of five justices. So that's where we are. That's where we are. Now, where do we go from here? And this is why I think that this is important. What happened this week is important. The way it happened is important, and that is we have, and, and David, by the way, in our division of labor is going to talk about the tax power issue because that obviously is what's on your mind. Well, what about the tax power? Doesn't all that stuff come back in on the tax power? I don't have time in this remarks to talk about it. If David doesn't say everything I think about that, I will mention it in the, in the, in the follow-up period about why that was not a good thing, but not such a terrible thing as compared to the alternative. As compared to the alternative. All right, so now, where, where do we go from here? Um, the way this happened is highly significant. Imagine that we're actually uh, in 1935. And in 1935, the Supreme Court strikes down the minimum wage law uh, by a five to four vote. What's coming after that? What's coming after that is 1937, when as a result of public pressure um, and the Democratic administration, the New Deal is then reauthorized, a different version of it is reauthorized, and it's upheld by a five to four vote based on another switch by a different Justice Roberts, the, the so-called switch in time that saved nine. Um, we could be at this point in 1935, only we, our position is the position that could conceivably emerge later. Why? Because for the first time in my lifetime, the American people, and, and by that I don't mean every single person, of course, but I mean the people who are engaged in public affairs and people who follow these things. The American people have been following this case since before the lawsuits were filed. The American people have been following every decision that's been made. The American people were riveted by the decision that was made last week. They were engaged, and they were aware, and a majority of them thought that the Affordable Care Act was unconstitutional, and a majority of them thought that the Supreme Court would find it unconstitutional, and they were deeply disappointed by what happened last week. That is a fact. And now what happens? Well, I don't believe the meaning of the Constitution change, changes. But the meaning of constitutional law, the substance of constitutional law, of course that changes with the different composition of the Supreme Court. And how does the Supreme Court change? It changes the same way it's always changed. A president nominates, an elected president nominates, and an elected Senate confirms the next justice. That's what they always do. And then the question is, which justices do you pick for the next justice? That's gonna be determined by an election. So here's the reason why, if I had to choose um, which um, of those two things we were fighting, Obamacare or, the con or to preserve the Constitution, if I had to choose, if you put a gun to my head and mandated that I had to choose which one of those things... No, 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 I we would... can only tax you if you don't do it, right? right. That's right. <laughs> um, if you tax me in order to make me choose this, um, here's what I would uh, have chosen. I think I would have chosen the Constitution because it is within the power of the electorate to reverse Obamacare. It's not going to be easy and it's not a guarantee, but it's something that can be done. And we have an election teed up in order to do that. The timing of this was actually quite good for that. 
but it would be next to impossible to reverse an adverse ruling about the Constitution that we were expecting if we lost on Obamacare. That would take generations. As it is, we made good law as opposed to bad law on the Constitution. But what we learned is five votes on the Supreme Court is not enough. Five justices are not enough. You need more. Because if you only have five, somebody breaks. Um, as a result, this election is not only going to be about Obamacare, but this election is also going to be about the Supreme Court. And this election is going to be about uh, electing a president who commits himself to nominating people for the Supreme Court that both believe in the written Constitution and the enumerated power scheme contained therein and have the courage to uphold that Constitution when pressure is brought to bear upon them. In other words, who have a judicial character as well as a, judi a judicial commitment. That's what this election should also be about. And if it is made to be about that, if the American people are so upset or so offended by what happened last week, and we'll, time will tell if that's true or not, but if that's true and this is made into that issue so that the next president actually does nominate better justices than they've been nominated in the past, then we could be standing at the threshold of what Bruce Ackerman at Yale Law School calls a constitutional moment in which from now on, justices are going to be selected because they're committed to the written constitution, including the enumerated power scheme, and they're going to be selected because they have the character to uh, resist pressure to the contrary. And if that happens, we will look back upon this day, this week, as the turning point that was actually necessary to occur for that to happen. Now, am I predicting that it will happen? No, I am not. And in that sense, it's not optimistic in that sense. I'm not predicting it either way. I didn't predict the way this case was going to come out, not once. And I'm not predicting the way the election is going to come out. And I'm not predicting what a Republican president and a Republican Senate would do if they won. I'm just saying that an election is a prerequisite to a constitutional moment. And the seeds of a constitutional moment have been sowed by our law challenge, our legal challenge, and by the ruling this week, and by the way that ruling was made. And as a result of that, there is reason for hope, and, there, and, and it's counterproductive for conservatives and libertarians to be um, completely pessimistic and, and, and have nothing but doom and gloom about what happens or is what is likely to happen. Now is the time to hitch up and go to town and ensure that this potential for a constitutional moment that we now see um, takes place, that this, in fact, is our 1935, and what's coming is going to be our 1937. Thank you. Well, thank you, Randy, for that upbeat uh, reaction to the um, opinion. Um, I'm not sure how large the class to which you belong is, but uh, it's good to have that view in any event. We're going to hear now on the tax issue from David Rivkin, Jr. Uh, David is a member of the Baker Hostetler's Litigation, International and Environmental Groups, and he co-chairs the firm's appellate and major motions team. He's had extensive experience in constitutional, administrative, and international law litigation. Um, he's been involved in numerous high-profile cases. He, of course, represented the 26 states that challenged uh, the constitutionality of Obamacare uh, and was the lead outside counsel in the district court 
and in the Court of Appeals in the 11th Circuit in that uh, litigation. Um, he also represented the Republic of Croatia before the International Criminal Tribunal um, for the former Yugoslavia and the International Court of Justice for a number of years on a wide range of issues involving international humanitarian law and the laws of war. Uh, he's uh, also a considerable experience with litigation involving national security related matters, including defending Bivens actions brought against uh, former Secretary of Defense uh, Donald Rumsfeld. From 2004 through 2007, he served as an expert member of the United Nations Subcommission on the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights. He's the recipient of numerous academic and professional awards, including Phi Alpha Theta in 1981, U.S. Naval Proceedings Annual Alfred Thayer Mahan Award for the Best Maritime Affairs Article in 1984, and the Burton Award for Legal Achievement in 2011. He's a prolific writer and commentary like all of our speakers here today. You've doubtless seen his articles in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and elsewhere. Uh, David is a graduate of Georgetown University, where he also received his MA in Soviet Affairs, and also a graduate of Columbia University Law School. Please welcome David Rifkin. Pleasure to be with you, and thank you for reminding me how old I really am, going back to, uh, to uh, some professional endeavors in the 1980s. Uh, I am torn about uh, how I feel about the case. Uh, at one level, I, I agree with Randy um, that uh, the Commerce Clause and Necessary Improper Clause portions of a case are superb. Uh, not only in terms of outcome, but in, in terms of restoring, refocusing attention on the core structural separation of powers provisions and particularly dual sovereignty system. While Randy has done a great job covering that, I would just add that it's not only the big picture, but the, the, the language in which uh, the court majority has rejected the theories that the supporters of Obamacare have been advancing for over two years is, is wonderful. It, it builds upon where uh, Justice Kennedy's concurrence in Lopez was. It's probably one of the most rousing discussions about virtues of dual sovereignty system, its impact on individual liberty, relationship between the structural separation of powers and the Bill of Rights. I cannot be happier, I cannot be any happier than that. It's particularly good on the necessary and proper clause, which is, as those of you uh, who deal with those issues uh, know, is not, the case law is not as abundant as the Commerce Clause. We felt from day one that we were squarely within the four corners of the uh, Commerce Clause case law, not just fundamental principles. The necessary and proper clause has not been as, uh, as well plowed. So having that decision deal with a necessary and proper clause is, uh, is indeed a constitutional triumph. Now, what bothers me and why I'm not as, as cheerful as I would have liked to be is not just the loss, uh, and, and I, I actually agree with Randy's characterization about the Constitution versus of a practical impact of a decision in, in striking and not striking down Obamacare. To me, there, this case has never been about health care. I've said it repeatedly. Nobody's believed about that. To me, this case was about individual liberty and the structure of a Constitution, and the fate of Obamacare and its policy implications have been distinctly distinctly secondary. What troubles me greatly is there is a considerable tension, and I don't think any, any of us on this panel 
Ilya or Randy would disagree with me when I say that there's serious doctrinal tension because uh, while the Roberts opinion, the court opinion, articulates powerfully the need for the federal government to exercise not only enumerated powers, but limited enumerated powers, meaning that each enumerated powers has to have a meaningful, judicially enforceable limiting principle. That, that's in the opinion. And I, some of us who've argued and talked about it before, but includes all three of us, have even made the, the dramatic impact the point that it's not only the case that Congress cannot exercise general police powers under the Commerce Clause by itself or is aided by the Necessary and Proper Clause. It cannot do so on the basis of all of Article I powers. So at one level, the opinion recognizes that. But then we have a problem with the taxing power, which is what I'll spend a balance of my time talking about. Now, you've uh, read some discussions about it, including an excellent piece in today's Wall Street Journal editorial, which I commend to your attention. And there are several problems with it. Frankly, the one that I am not as exercised or exercised about is the fact that Chief Justice Roberts, with all due respect, rewrote the law. Uh, he did not interpret the uh, language that Congress enacted. He rewrote it. In fact, if you wanted kind of a flippant observation, just like the front end, it took Nancy Pelosi, as per her immortal statement, remember, we need to pass the law to figure out what's in it. It took the Supreme Court to write the law to uphold it. Uh, and clearly, rewriting the law um, is not justified by the imperative of constitutional deference. It's not justified by going to the nth degree to parse the words in such a way as to, to save it from oblivion. He wrote the law. And that's my honest opinion. One can disagree with that. But, and that's clearly not a judicial function. OK, so that's, that's unfortunate. But that's kind of a one-off, perhaps. And God knows ju ju judges and justices have written the law before. What troubles me far more is the way he reconceived taxing power makes it another species of general police power, or at least something that can easily morph into it. And to get at that, uh, at my point, let me remind you that we do need, as I said a few minutes ago, a meaningful judicially enforceable limiting principle for each enumerated power, but they're not the same for a number of them. It would be passing strange if they were. Uh, with regard to the taxing power, and let's reflect for a second that the framers were very concerned about taxes. And so if you look at the sort of a front end of American Revolution. They wanted to have formidable limitations, and recognizing, of course, that the federal government needed to have some taxing power. The fact that articles, the government and the Articles of Confederation did not was a problem that the Constitutional Convention was meant to fix. The framers wanted to put some serious restrictions on the taxing power, and the power that particularly bothered them were not indirect taxes in the nature of, of excise and and impose because those powers were well understood, you know. And of course, if you jacked up the price on uh, uh, excise tax on tea or coffee or firearms or clocks, uh, people would not buy them. But um, the opportunity for it would be a tipping point, a little off a curve, and the government may not get as much revenue. But as far as an opportunity to trample upon individual liberty, it was not. It was not that um, that dangerous. The framers were particularly concerned about direct powers, which, if you think about it, are powers to tax individuals, sometimes called capitation tax, sometimes called poll tax or head tax. These are taxes imposed on individuals, either all of them or some of them, because they exist, which 
in to those of us who have been dealing with a whole dichotomy between general police power and enumerated powers, suggest that it can morph very easily into general police power. And the framers understood that. Therefore, they came up with a couple of, of ways of disciplining and cabining the exercise of direct taxing. One of them is apportionment. Apportionment is a fairly obscure term. It's only happened, to the best of my knowledge, once maybe twice in, in our history, but the basic proposition is that uh, while on a per capita basis the tax is the same, uh, the way it would be structured, it would be uh, uh, each state would sort of have assigned bogey or assigned target uh, per rata with the population and per rata with its state's representation in the House. Therefore, the idea was that the largest state would find it particularly difficult to vote for such a thing because at least as a symbolic matter, it would look like if you're a large state like New York or Massachusetts relative to Rhode Island, uh, and I'm talking about the original uh, composition of states, uh, you would have to tell your constituents that it seems like your state is, is, is paying a lot more. Now, um, Justice Roberts, uh, in my opinion, incorrectly concluded that this is not a direct tax. He said that this is not a species of direct tax were recognized. On the other hand, he did not point out what kind of indirect tax it is. It's clearly not a tax on income, and it's an important point to underscore, because contrary to the court's opinion, this is a tax that's triggered by you having an income. But it's not true a tax on income in a sense that for vast majority of taxpayers, and that's the argument we made very early on in the, in the first stage of litigation in opposition of a government's motion to dismiss. It's not tax that's truly measured by your income. And the whole essence of an income tax, it is measured by your accession to wealth. Uh, it's really in the nature of the head tax. Nor is it clearly not, it's not an excise tax or an impose tax. Now, there's a passage, for those of you who read the opinion, about the tax on gasoline, but the whole point is that taxes on gasoline or taxes on coffee or tea are taxes on a commodity. You can have taxes on transactions. In fact, the original ambit and, and the current ambit of, of impose and excise, uh, excise taxes is exactly the same as things that can be reached for the Commerce Clause, activities and things. That's not it. Now, can we, as a thought experiment, envision for a second that you can tax somebody for an absence of gasoline? Or you cannot tax somebody for purchasing broccoli, which, by the way, if you did that, that would be fine. That would be a, an excise tax on broccoli. But can you tax somebody for an, an absence of broccoli? Uh, the notion that this is a, an an excise tax does not pass the love test. Now, um, in an effort to help himself get around the issue of why it's not a direct tax, uh, the Chief Justice quotes from an early opinion. I promised to spare you the case names. I was told that that's the case. And basically says that direct tax, taxes are only, or capitation taxes, only imposed on individuals without any regard for their circumstances. Uh, I think he misreads this opinion. The circumstances they're talking about is really a profession or business, because under his logic, if an excise tax imposed on all American people at the same time, it would be a direct tax, which have to be apportioned. But let's do another thought experiment. Let's slice it into, into three pieces. Let's say first the tax is imposed on all pregnant women, and then on all women, and then on all men, since it would not be imposed on everybody at any given point in time with regard to their circumstances. In three stages, you can impose a direct tax on everybody without having to worry about apportionment. It does not work. It's, it's a badly written 
uh, and, and badly conceived, a well-conceived opinion. But there's an even bigger problem which gets into, am I as optimistic as Randy or slightly less optimistic? He also disclaims the proposition, and again, to save you from taxation, uh, from reference to early cases, he basically says, look, I understand that this tax has a regulatory impact. And there used to be days we worried about regulatory impact of taxes. But we don't do that anymore, and just leaves it at that. If you look at page 42, there is a very elegant pivot towards the bottom of a page. Elegant only in a sense that it, it is drafted elegantly. The problem of this argument, going back to the very fundamentals about which Randy and I are talking about, if you can uh, have a tax with substantial regulatory impact, it would and you, you care not at all about the regulatory impact. That is off the table. The court is not looking at it. You're going to have a tax that would accomplish the same general police power type impact that the Commerce Clause or Necessary and Proper Clause can accomplish. And it's very easy to, to stipulate how that can happen. Aside from this particular mandate, you can have dozens of other mandates, all of which are backed up by a regulatory penalty slash tax. And while there, I mean, it's interesting, Justice Roberts, in an effort to disclaim that outcome, talks about his own limiting factors, which, quite frankly, are as unpersuasive as the limiting factors the government try to advance in the context of an necessary and proper clause. For example, he talks about, well, it's really money, and money is not as coercive as direct mandate. But with respect, this is wrong. There are some aspects of human behavior, ladies and gentlemen, that cannot be monetized. But 99% of the time, if you believe in, 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 in the market forces and capitalism, it can be. There's absolutely no difference between mandating the use of broccoli and penalizing you for not doing that to the tune of, I don't know, $500 and taxing you $500 if you don't buy broccoli. And a rational man would, would discern no difference between those two mandates. Now, two, before I stop, let me try to defend him a little bit. Perhaps, and this is something that several of us have pointed out by now, perhaps the Chief Justice believed that by calling this type of an approach a tax, he is providing the accountability that the politicians have not seen fit to provide at the front end. We always argued that you could enact a tax properly, uh, increase everybody taxes everybody pays and have a tax credit that accomplishes the same result. The politicians, of course, disclaim resolutely, including President Obama, Speaker Pelosi, then Speaker Pelosi, uh, Senate Majority Leader Reid, they've all said this is not a tax. So perhaps the Chief Justice felt by designating as a tax, because the T word has fairly poisonous political connotations, he's making practically, and maybe that's the reason for Andy's optimism, practically much more difficult to exercise limited police power that just as trenchantly would destroy the constitutional architecture as the Commerce Clause, but it'd just be more difficult, more onerous. Frankly, I considered that as a possibility for the first few hours, and I noticed a strange thing, ladies and gentlemen. Have you noticed how this administration so far, very adroitly and with seeming impunity, has been able to maintain, as per statements by both the president, as well as the very same Nancy Pelosi, as well as the White House chief of staff, uh, and many other folks, I'm not spent all my weekend looking at the Sunday shows, their point is it's a penalty. So we now have this strange result. We have something that is a tax for constitutional purposes, but a penalty on freeloaders, but that's rhetoric, a, a penalty for political purposes. So if a Chief Justice was really planning to 
use the T word as a, as a palpable way of, of making this foray into general police power more difficult, I wonder if he succeeded. But the, the fundamental problem is that even if he is right, again, the, the whole thrust of our effort has been to say it cannot be just political obstacles. My good friend Paul Clement, who argued the case before the Supreme Court at one point in time, made an excellent observation. He specifically referred to the impermissibility of Garcia sizing. Well, if you're not lawyers, he's talking about a, a, a particular case where the Supreme Court found that one aspect of structural separation of powers relating to state sovereignty did not have to be enforced for judicial channels. It could be political, but it's a very narrow situation in the Garcia case. And you cannot have the, the, the fundamental part of the structural separation of powers enforced with purely political means. And that's what we're talking about here. It's all about the T word is purely political means. And the factors that the chief articulates, his own limiting factors, the fact that, you know, the amount of a levy is reasonable. What is reasonable? It's a few hundred dollars, but is there any constitutional basis? I would ask any one of my colleagues, any one of you, to say that it was 4,000, it would not be reasonable. And then he's saying, okay, it's enforced by the IRS. We always argue that it's irrelevant. If that's all that it takes, have it enforced by the IRS and put in the Internal Revenue Code, you can channel all sorts of mandates for Internal Revenue Code. And, and then again, the point that somehow it is less uh, destructive, less onerous if it's done as a tax. Again, back to my point, for most things in life, a $500 penalty for not buying broccoli is no different than a $500 penalty for not buying broccoli. So uh, we, we are left with this situation, a wonderful portion of opinion, plus the the Medicaid stuff that uh, Ilya is going to talk about, but a very, very dangerous deconstruction of a taxing power that really in it contains no judicially enforceable viable limiting factors and, and may well provide for an opportunity to, uh, to get at this by, by other means. I mean, and let me just finish by giving you one last horrible scenario. Uh, nothing would prevent the government, and actually would be even stronger in this case, to have a true tax. Imagine a situation where the government taxes everybody at 99 percent. It's a true income tax. And then there are 500 provisions in the tax code that say if you buy this, you get a tax credit. If you buy that, you have a tax credit. The totality of your behavior is still controlled by the government, uh, albeit done through the tax code. Can one really say that you cannot look at the regulatory impact of those provisions and say, that's a general police power? That, that, that is very difficult for me to swallow. And maybe we'll never get there for political reasons, but at least the opportunity for this kind of morphing of a tax power is inherent, unfortunately, in the Chief Justice's opinion. Thank you. Thank you, David. Isn't that pretty much what we've got, though? The, you give your money to the government and it says if you buy a house, you get a tax credit, and if you buy this, and so forth. We've come to that, haven't we, largely? As a matter of quality, not yet. Um, it's Time. Well, and that's why it's dangerous. Yes. Okay, we're going to now wrap it up with Ilya Shapiro, who is a senior fellow in constitutional studies here at the Cato Institute and is the editor-in-chief of Cato's... Uh, uh, Supreme Court Review, which will be out in just another uh, two and a half months, the uh, first scholarly uh, review of the court's term, and this is going to be a big one because there were many important decisions that came down this term. Uh, before joining Cato, Ilya was a special assistant advisor to the multinational force in Iraq on rule of law issues. 
uh, and he practiced international political, commercial, and antitrust litigation at Patton Boggs and Cleary Gottlieb. Um, he, uh, like our other two guests, uh, is a prolific writer. He has contributed to a variety of academic, popular, and professional publications, again, including the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, LA Times, and so forth. Um, he is a, a guest off on uh, TV shows oftentimes, including the Colbert Report, uh, where he defended the Second Amendment. Um, he uh, is a graduate of uh, Princeton and uh, the London School of Economics, uh, where he did a master's degree, and the University of Chicago Law School, after which he clerked for Judge E. Grady Jolly on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Please welcome Ilya Shapiro. Thank you very much. It's an honor uh, to be on this august panel, uh, not just uh, because of Randy and, and David's great reputation individually, but uh, they are the progenitors and, uh, as the New York Times called Randy, intellectual godfathers of uh, this litigation. It's been um, uh, an honor watching them work and seeing the theories developed and uh, trying to do what little I can uh, to advance um, the challenges and try to restore the, the Constitution. In fact, perhaps the, the greatest honor I had during this whole thing was being Randy's lawyer in the sense that before he uh, joined the council table uh, in, the, in the state's challenge, in the NFIB's challenge, uh, he was a, a fellow amicus, friend of the court, joining Cato on a number of briefs uh, that I was uh, privileged to sign off on. This has been uh, a fascinating journey, uh, and Randy is right. Uh, this is a, uh, a weird sort of victory uh, for federalism enclosed in a, in a loss. Uh, as I titled my SCOTUS blog essay, we want everything but the case. Uh, never did I think that I could feel this hollow after having a ringing endorsement from a Supreme Court majority about my theories on the Commerce Clause, Necessary and Proper Clause, and Spending Clause. Indeed, I filed four briefs at the Supreme Court, um, and the, there's, the majorities did not contradict anything I said in any of those briefs. Um, luckily, I wasn't one of the Amici who was charged with addressing the taxing power. Um, and uh, I was there in the court uh, on Thursday. Um, it, was, uh, uh, it was striking. Um, I understand why Fox News and CNN got it wrong uh, immediately. I think all of us did sitting in the court as we, as we heard Chief Justice Roberts go on so passionately. Uh, about why there are actual limits on the Commerce Clause. I mean, the language really is incredible. The framers gave Congress the power to regulate commerce, not to compel it. The Commerce Clause is not a general license to regulate an individual from cradle to grave, simply because he will predictably engage in particular transactions. Even if the individual mandate is necessary to the Act's insurance reforms, such an expansion of federal power is not a proper means for making those reforms effective. Those could have come from any of my briefs or Randy's writings or David's oral arguments below. Um, that's, that was incredible. My heart was racing. And then I thought, well, he mentioned that we have to address the taxing power. Well, of course you do, because that was an alternative argument. And I mean, but I thought we'd won. And, uh, and we didn't. And I wasn't quite sure what was going on. Um, 
Ultimately, I think it was a political decision. It's really hard to make sense of the Chief Justice's opinion, but uh, as I wrote in a blog post that just went up, it seems like he made this tactical decision for something less than whales, as in the, uh, the famous film, A Man for All Seasons, right? You uh, perjure yourself and your legal soul uh, to get some, something else. In that case, the character became the Attorney General of Wales. Here, I'm not sure what Chief Justice Roberts is saving the court for. And this might uh, you know, jeopardize my future confirmability for something, but uh, I, I don't think, uh, I think that die has been cast already. Let me move to what I'm actually supposed to talk about here. Um, and that is the, the other big win, perhaps the biggest win, uh, and may turn out to be the, the biggest thing that this case is remembered for. For the first time in modern jurisprudence, that is since the New Deal, the court found unconstitutional, found a federal law unconstitutional as exceeding Congress's spending power. Um, the question that the court asked, and this goes back decades to the New Deal era, is whether the financial inducement offered by Congress is so coercive as to pass the point at which pressure turns into compulsion. That is, in our federal system, the federal government cannot command, mandate, uh, states and their officials to uh, enact, enforce federal law or federal regulations. Uh, the court upheld that as recently as 92 and 97, the New York and Prince cases. You cannot commandeer state officials to do federal bidding. Now, Randy transformed that idea into commandeering the individual because the 10th Amendment, of course, reserves powers not just to the states and sovereignty, but to the people. And here, in effect, uh, Congress is commandeering the people to do its bidding. But nevertheless, on this Medicaid part, what the court held in agreeing with uh, the state's uh, arguments, the state's claims, was that Congress violated the Constitution by threatening all existing Medicaid funding, all federal funding that went to the states. Um, Congress said that all of that funding would be lost if they didn't accept the new regulations, the new transformation, the expansion of Medicaid uh, that's required under Obamacare. The court said that um, Congress can offer the states grants and require the states to comply with the strings attached to those grants, but the states have to have a genuine choice in the matter, uh, which they're not here. They must either accept a basic change uh, in Medicaid in which they're inextricably connected and intertwined or lose all Medicaid funding. They're effectively between a rock and a hard place. Rather than striking down all the Medicaid expansion, however, after finding this, and by the way, seven justices agreed that it was unconstitutional to condition all Medicaid funding on new conditions. Seven justices, uh, including Breyer, who previously seemed to have not found any judicially enforceable limit on federal power, and Elena Kagan, who laughed at this argument during oral argument. I don't know if you all remember this, but she said, well, the states are being offered a boatload of money. Sounds like a pretty good deal. Um, well, she found that it was an unconstitutional deal as well. Seven uh, justices found this unconstitutional. Um, uh, but again, the remedy after finding this uh, unconstitutionality by five justices at this point, the, the four dissenters dropped off, that is the four uh, other Republican appointees dropped off, and the two other liberals joined on with this remedy, uh, saying that now effectively, again, rewriting this provision, rather than making it an all or nothing, it's voluntary. States 
uh, can choose the new funds if they also then are willing to accept the new expansions and regulations associated with those funds. Or they can keep the status quo ante, what was in place before Obamacare vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Medicaid. That seems to throw off the whole national transformation, the intricate Rube Goldberg device, uh, perhaps not quite as much as the individual mandate and the insurance reforms in Title I, but certainly this Title II stuff, it's hard to, uh, to reconcile, again, that severability analysis. You know, all, we had all been talking about severability with respect to the individual mandate, but here, in effect, uh, the Chief Justice rewrote the Medicaid expansion and then applied a severability clause. What, um, the, the joint four-justice dissent called, let's see, what did they call it? Right, rather than a uh, severability, it was an amendatory amend invalidation clause, effectively. Uh, there was a clause there in the Medicaid expansion that said that if part of this provision is found unconstitutional, the rest can stand. But here, it wasn't that the rest was standing, a rewritten sort of thing was standing. So again, a, a curious uh, uh, resolution here. The spending clause grants Congress the power to pay the debts and provide for the general welfare of the United States, says the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, first clause. The court says, Robert's opinion, we have long recognized that Congress may use this power to grant federal funds to the states and may condition such a grant upon the states taking certain actions that Congress could not require them to take. However, because spending clause legislation is also much in the nature of a contract, this was another approach that various Amici were, were pushing, Jim Bloomstein, most notably, who's going to be writing the article about Medicaid for our Supreme Court review. He's a Vanderbilt law professor. Um, the Congress, the federal government, is effectively breaking its contract or, or trying to uh, impose an unconscionable contract of adhesion, as, as lawyers would call it in, in private law. But here, um, the state signed up for one type of program, Medicaid, and they're being forced into another. Uh, the last state to join Medicaid was Arizona in 82, and clearly the, what was in place even then, let alone in 1965 originally, is different than this new transformation. Rather than taking care merely of uh, uh, pregnant women and dependent children, the elderly and the disabled, here we have a, a massive expansion up to 133% of the poverty line and a, and a whole host of other requirements. Um, this system, to prevent spending clause legislation from being coercive, uh, the majority through Justice, Chief Justice Roberts said, rests on what might at first seem a counterintuitive insight, that freedom is enhanced by the creation of two governments, not one. Again, thinking back to Federalist 10, uh, the, 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 the multiple uh, sovereigns working to uh, preserve and protect liberty. When pressure turns into compulsion, the court said, echoing that 1937 case that I talked about at the beginning, it's called Steward Machine, which was also quoted in the last case regarding this clause, South Dakota versus Dole, which involved conditioning a little bit of highway funds on raising the drinking age. The legislation runs contrary to our system of federalism. The Constitution simply does not give Congress the authority to require the states to regulate. So again, Congress may attach appropriate conditions to federal tax and spend programs to control the use of those federal funds. Uh, it can have inducements and encouragements, incentives for uh, states to join um, those programs, but it cannot pressure them. And here, the financial inducement Congress has chosen, Chief Justice Roberts says, is much more than relatively mild encouragement. It is a gun to the head. 
Congress may not simply, quote, conscript state agencies into the national bureaucratic army. And I'll leave you with this. What is the test for this revolutionary, effectively, uh, <laughs> most precedenting setting part of this opinion of the Medicaid uh, expansion, the spending clause jurisdiction? Well, we're left with kind of a, a panoply of factors that courts will be grappling with the next time some healthcare or environmental or social security or, or other program uh, starts intruding or being pres unduly pressuring states. Uh, the court framed the issue as whether a state has a legitimate choice whether to accept the federal conditions in exchange for federal funds. And there are four factors essentially. The size of the grant that could be withdrawn, so here something perhaps more than 10% uh, of a state's total budget versus one half of 1% with the highway funds. Second, whether the newly imposed conditions make the law in reality a new program or simply a modification of the old one. Then whether states are threatened with loss of existing funds or merely a choice about new sources of revenue. And finally, whether the attached conditions are one that, quote, govern the use of funds or instead take the form of threats to terminate other significant independent grants as a means of pressuring the states to accept policy changes. Yes, there are line drawing problems with this. The court said that it didn't need to exactly specify the line, just that, yes, there can be coercion by the, via the spending clause, and this is clearly beyond whatever that line is. And these are the guidelines uh, for courts in future to um, evaluate the challenges. I think I'll leave it there. Um, uh, again, uh, this is... Uh, we will be talking, once, once Obamacare, the policy issues, you know, my healthcare colleagues in the next panel will discuss those. But as we move forward constitutionally and in terms of jurisprudence and what the court is going to be doing with other uh, programs, could be as soon as Dodd-Frank, a big uh, case was filed a few weeks ago by Boyd and Gray. Um, these are what we are going to remember from this case. Obamacare is upheld, and that's certainly a big loss for healthcare and for the economy. Uh, but the Constitution, I agree with Randy, as far as that goes, I, I'm not sure how, much, uh, how, how many legs the taxing power political decision will have, but certainly on the commerce necessary and proper clause, and especially, you know, that only basically put in place, put an underline under the rate standard. But for, for the Medicaid, for the, uh, for the spending clause issue, that really was breaking new ground and imposing new limits on federal power, which is what this challenge was all about. Thank you.